Hi there, this is Hina Shahid, and you're listening to the Pluralist Podcast. Welcome to the very first episode. Today, we will be talking about social media use among tweens, teens, and how white supremacist groups use social media platforms to prey on young minds. Our guest today is Joanna Schroeder. She is a writer and a media critic. Her work has appeared in New York Times, as well as many online publications such as Time Magazine and Huffington Post. I have been spending the last few years looking at my kids' media consumption and trying to really analyze it and think about how the media that our kids take in affects not only their outcomes, but how they interact with the outside world and how they're going to be changing the world based on that media consumption. Right. And so um, we got introduced um, because I read your article in New York Times, and that's the time that you were talking about and you were writing about, you know, certain messages that were coming across to your teenager and your teenager. How did you even conclude what was happening and write about it? Well, I'd been watching the way as my kids became more independent on the internet, just watching, you know, in, in mostly very innocent ways, the ways that their their language choices and um, the way they talked changed. And a lot of parents start to see that when their kids are around third grade, they pick up very innocent phrases that they hear online, a lot of times from YouTubers who are doing Minecraft videos or something. And as a parent, you generally know where the things your kids say come from. And then all of a sudden they start saying something. And even if it's just silly, you're like, oh my gosh, these YouTubers have this huge influence on my kids. YouTube for them is so influential. And if they play any sort of video game, whether it's Roblox or Minecraft or Fortnite, it part of that culture and part of that experience for them is to go onto YouTube and watch someone else play the game live and they learn tips and they'll go on if they don't know how to crack into some certain, if they don't know how to crack into some certain safe, they'll go and find a video on it and watch a YouTuber do it. And it's cool because they're very independent and they know how to solve problems by looking online, but it's a little scary because they come to trust the way that format, the format of someone getting up and, and vlogging and talking to them and giving their opinions. And it starts with, at least for my boys and a lot of the kids I know, these video game YouTubers. Mm. So for me, I started paying attention to it when I just heard the little silly things. And then as I watched my kids change and grow as people, I realized that maybe some of these people have some opinions that are not so healthy for my kids. And when I started observing how YouTube scrolls video after video, much like how if you and I are watching Netflix, we'll be, it'll just autoplay the next episode for us. YouTube will autoplay another video. And there are, there are people with political agendas who are clever enough to figure out that these kids, particularly white boys, but also some girls and, and, and possibly some kids of color who are watching these video game videos and are just at this perfect age to absorb this messaging. And all of a sudden your auto scrolls start being political instead of being about video games. So 
I was like, I need to raise the alarm on this. And I actually tweeted a Twitter thread that went just massively, hugely viral because I think parents knew in their hearts that there was something going on on YouTube and something going on on, on social media that may be a little bit nefarious when it came to political agendas, especially the alt-right and even getting into white supremacy to some degree. Hmm. And so um, how was it that you started detecting? Was it coming into their language that they were using? They were sort of using certain phrases that had a different meaning and they weren't really Yeah, I remember when one of my sons got in the car after school and said, "Um, how many genders are there? And I was like, he's probably in fifth grade. And it's definitely an interesting topic and something adults probably are curious about too is you know the idea and definition of gender is really shifting and changing and but i knew that that wasn't something that was normal conversation among kids it's not something they would have come up with on their own on the playground and i asked where he heard that and i can't remember if it was him or someone that he knew had heard a youtuber saying that there's only two genders and that other people say there's more so of course it was actually a great opportunity to talk to my son about gender identity and accepting people for who they are and believing them when they say say who they are and um you know the basic question is you know what if someone says they're a boy and they're really a girl and i say it doesn't matter to you you just believe what they say it's a nice opportunity to have that conversation but that that was my first sort of like it was just a little pricking in the back of my mind that these kids are getting more than just uh, video game advice online. Hmm. And so with teenagers and also with tweens these days, you know, they're, they're doing everything on YouTube. They're learning how to play, how, you know, play guitar. They're learning like how to animate videos. And, you know, some of those things are, you're like, oh, this is great. You're learning on your own and you have this whole world open to you. But then they're also coming across a lot of jokes or snide comments that might be borderline offensive, but it's not something that they know. They're also at this age where they're sort of pushing the boundaries and testing waters. And they feel this is grown up talk, or these are the things that they just pick without really understanding what it means. Um, Yeah, that's that's a hard thing, isn't it? It's challenging. Yeah. And then there's this notion of peer pressure where everybody else is around you talking in a certain way. And you might say, oh, my parents might not like what I'm saying, but you know, I'm among my own peer group and it's totally fine to say this because you always want to be like the, in the in crowd. How do you deal with that? You know, this is such a big conversation because there are so many things that parents don't realize starting in around fifth grade. Uh, they just don't realize how much their kids are exposed to from their friends and they don't realize how normalized it is to be racist, sexist, and homophobic. Like, I, the first time one of my kids came home and told me that kids at school were saying the F-A-G word and calling people whatever, really offensive things, and that kids at school were even saying the N-word in purposefully derogatory ways, not just, you know, while rapping a song or something. Um, I had already had these conversations with my kids because I had an understanding about, you know, if they hear those things, I wanted them to understand first and foremost, it's not the same as saying a swear word. It's not the same as saying the S word or 
or damn it or something. And maybe they're not allowed to say that at home and at school, but that's a naughty word. Whereas I wanted my kids to understand that then beyond naughty, there's also hurtful. So someone may not like it that you said the S word, but if you go and you say the N word, who does that hurt? Who does that affect? I mean, if you call someone the F-A-G word, how does that make them feel? So immediately trying to introduce the idea of like empathy and, and distinguishing, distinguishing between swears and harm being done. Hmm. And that lesson probably is the most important thing. And I've tried so hard to get my friends who are also parents of middle schoolers and high schoolers to understand that, you know, saying, oh, that's an offensive word is not enough, that they have to also invoke this empathy idea. So it's normalized at school as it always has been since we were young. And, but now it's even more normalized online. And what happens online is something that goes a whole step further. Um, there's this concept of the edge Lord, which is somebody who is their whole brand is developed around being edgy and being offensive. And when I was young, the original edge Lord was like Andrew Dice Clay who got on stage and he had this whole puffed up thing. And he said the worst, most offensive things that a white guy could say. And he said it. And that was his idea. That was his, I mean, that was his brand. We wouldn't have said it in the eighties. We wouldn't have called it a brand, but now we would, it's his brand. That was his voice. There's now there's tons of these guys and they're doing the same thing online. And one of the problems with, I'm not saying Andrew Dice Clay wasn't offensive in the eighties. He was, but the, but there was a degree to which audience members and club owners could dial him back and could say like, now you've crossed the line or like they just wouldn't laugh and he'd know, okay, I went too far. And um, with these YouTube characters, they are edgy on purpose and there's no censorship. To some degree, they can be demonetized by YouTube, but in general, there's no uh, club owner that says, I'm not gonna hire you back if you do that. There's no, um, there's no, no repercussions for that. There's no repercussions. In fact, they get more and more views. If someone's offended by it and they're like, look what so-and-so said. And then all of a sudden they have even more views. And if that, that video is monetized, they're making hundreds, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars off being offensive on purpose. And the kids don't get it. The kids don't get that they're being marketed to. The kids don't get that just like when you watch an ad on TV for a Nerf gun, that someone's, they know that someone's selling them that. They don't get that these edgelords, they're, they're being offensive because they're selling a product. And that's what the parents have to teach the kids. Like, what does this guy have in mind for you? It's like, he made a joke about, about Jewish people going into an oven. Do you understand the hurt of that? Do you understand the pain that people experience it? So there are Holocaust survivors alive right now. And this guy is making money off touching the most painful parts of our experiences. And he's not doing it to teach us anything. He's only doing it to make money. And he's playing you. And that was what I would tell my kids was like, these guys are playing you. They probably don't even believe this stuff, but they're, they're playing you like a fiddle. They're getting you to click and watch more videos. And then there's all these, these young white boys that are like, they think it's clever and interesting and innovative. And they don't realize it's, people have been doing this forever. It's not that innovative. So, you know, going in and teaching them to, to, 
take this media, whether it's a meme, most memes are totally fine and great and I love memes, or it's YouTube or it's a TikToker, going in and just being like, here's why this is offensive. I know that most people don't see that, but I want you to know this so that you don't hurt somebody. Mm. I think that's really important. Um, but then it goes a step further in that white supremacist groups, actual white supremacist organizations, when I was young, it would have been called, people would have been called skinheads or neo-Nazis, are seeing that this entryway through these edgelord or edgy memes, edgy videos, and they're like, we can convert these guys to white supremacists. And they take it, they go in and they go to chat rooms and they go like mostly their uh, message boards, that's for kids with depression, kids that have mental illness challenges, kids with autism, um, kids that play video games, which is every kind of kid pretty much. And they just start indoctrinating them and normalizing hate. And that is the scariest part because it's working. The guy that killed Heather Heyer in Charlottesville had a very active online presence. I don't know how he started becoming a white supremacist, but we know that he was actively involved in spreading hate and researching hate and growing his own sense of hate online through these types of forums. And that's what's terrifying because that all, all of our white boys, like my son, are vulnerable to that messaging if we don't interrupt it. Mm -hmm. And earlier time, it used to be, and you know, when I, you know, when I did my research with the older uh, group who used to be part of the skinheads or neo-Nazis um, or all the, you know, white power groups, they were always like, there was another, there was a person who influenced them, who met with them and they had built a community. It was a very physical contact, very in-person sort of a thing that grew. Again, they had certain vulnerabilities and if they were excluded elsewhere, these groups, they know how to include you to prey on you. Um, but even they talk about how things have changed now you don't need to know like this this influencer is like coming out of youtube you're going there and you know there are people that i've spoken to the young folks where they've gone because they're depressed for some reason they've gone to college and this is totally new for them and they don't know anybody and all of that and then they just go and start looking at a youtube video and somebody who's giving them lectures and the next thing you know a few months later they have like been totally uh, indoctrinated and brain brainwashed to believe certain things that they were, they, they realized that they're like, how did I even get there? And sometimes it's not even, and you would think that this is only coming to people of certain color. Like, you know, they're only focusing on, on, on white boys, but it, in some ways, so I was speaking to, um, during my research with another young man and he was in high school, um, and was going through his own trauma and, um, he was first generation Bosnian uh, oh. American. And so he just felt like everything, all the hate that was spewed towards Muslim was like from Middle East and he's not from Middle East, he's European. And so he never thought the two and two together. And for him, it all started from chat rooms where he would just go to, you know, watch people play videos or chat rooms where he would go to navigate and how to like play better. And so video games were a way for him to, he ended up on 4chan and from then 
you know, he just went in a different pivot. And, and even looking back, he's like, I don't know how I got, got there. I just got there. You know, it just literally just takes you in and it's a spiral and sucks you into this vortex. And if you don't find outside of you anything that is different from what you're hearing, you're totally sucked in. But if your outside reality, like the real world, people around you are sort of negating it, it sort of like punches you back. So you yeah. can be punched back into reality. But what if somebody's context is different where there's nobody else to punch them out of this vortex? You're just sucked in. I think that we, the messages that I get, I get every week, I get direct messages or emails from people I don't know. And sometimes some people I do know, but mostly people I don't know who found my article or they saw me on CNN and they're saying that exact same thing. They're like, we're moderates or we're progressives and, or, or we're moderate Republicans. And, and our child all of a sudden is saying that, you know, he's talking about a race war and I don't even know how this happened. And I think the scary thing is, the reassuring thing is that I think once you're concerned and you want to do things the right way and you want to talk to them about it, I think the kids will probably end up okay. I hate to think about the damage that they're doing along the way when they're at school or wherever they are, but I think in the long run, having, I think kids often end up like their parents. What concerns me is right now we're seeing a blossoming of this because I think there are a lot of parents who are really invested in the Donald Trump type of othering of minority groups and that they're so vulnerable to these messages too. So when their kid comes to them and says some fictionalized or manipulated statistic, the big one I saw was that you're more likely to be killed by a black person if you're a white person than if you're a black person killed by a white person whatever. <laughs> you're more likely to be killed by someone outside your race if you're white. Technically true, but that's a manipulated statement. And, and if a kid has parents who are already buying into this Donald Trump type of rhetoric, A, they're probably never going to question whether it's true. They're never going to look up the context. They're never going to say to their kid, actually, if you're a white person, you're way, 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 way more likely to be killed by another white person. You're extremely unlikely that you're going to be killed by a black person. Someone racist told you this. That's what you would say if you're a liberal parent. But if you're already buying into this anti-Black Lives Matter messaging, then you don't question it. And because it fits your narrative. So maybe you're not white supremacist, but without challenging it, you're going along with it and you could create a, a like a true neo-nazi kid because they're not getting any challenge on it and that's why it's important in schools to make sure the truth is coming out and really importantly i wish that kids didn't have to learn pre-calculus and said they could learn statistics <laughs> because statistical analysis is the first thing that a 10th grader should know how to do so that they can hear a statistic look for the study, read it, and know exactly how to, how to figure out the truth of what someone's trying to tell them. Hmm. You know? And that's something I'm already working on with my kids because they're not going to get statistics till college, unfortunately. Hmm. It's just not offered at their school. But it, that, mess, that counter messaging is so crucial. Yeah. And in some ways, it's like developing filters 
for these kids. So when they're, they are going to see things, you know, there's, there's just, what are you going to do about it? They're going to see things. So how do you develop that filter, some sort of a lens that they're able to, able to see through? You talk about, you know, them studying statistics, um, critical thinking, or just being able to look at something that is being said and really critically see like, how true is this? How will I go find this thing? And, yeah. you know, how do I know that this is the right information? So now a lot of kids are even, I mean, even with adults, you know, with boomers, out, there's a lot of um, media literacy campaigns yeah. that go out there of how to spot what is correct information and what is not. Because when, you know, just like kids, um, they see all sorts of information and you would think just like how old media was, there's some sort of a fact check, there's a reporter, yeah. somebody has reported it they look at the things from the same lens and with kids, they don't even know any better. So when they see these things, you know, in all these mediums, they think it's a real thing. Why else would somebody do that? Like what's the context of this happening otherwise? And if, if already in our society, we're sending them messages, um, if they're hearing about how many black men are in jail, then what they hear is a statistic somewhat manipulated out of context statistic about being murdered by a black person, if that fits that narrative, even if they're not being told that by a white supremacist, if that fits their narrative, they're never gonna question whether it's the nature of, of a person's race or if it's society. You know, with, with, our, with my kids, they might, if they were to ask a question like that, which they haven't yet, I would talk about the racist criminal justice system and how we can track back racist punishments to four-year-olds in preschool and how the darker their skin are, the worse the punishment is for the exact same bad behavior in preschool compared to, to, to white kids. And they start at that at age four, you tell people they're bad at age four and they're naughty and they're bad kids. How does that translate to when they're 16, 18, 25? And we know what's happening in the criminal justice system too, not just in schools. So that's the message that needs to get out there because it's so, it's not happening. The conversation is not happening and people online are just waiting to pounce and take advantage of the fact that our kids are ignorant about these sorts of systems. That's why it has to happen in schools. It has to happen in schools because not every parent is going to be there teaching their kid how to analyze media. But I think for parents who do want to do that, a really great place to start is when your kids are tiny and I have a toddler when she's around four or five, it'll be easier. But if you're watching a show together, Daniel Tiger or, you know, uh, Ariel Mermaid, whatever you're watching with them, that's their media. If you're able to talk to them about, you know, start analyzing it, you know, and Daniel Tiger, it's like, Oh, you know, what's interesting about, about, Oh, the owl. I think it's so interesting that they portrayed him to be like this. I think that's so interesting. I wonder what they're trying to say about that. Or if you're watching Little Mermaid, it's like, wow, would, if you were Ariel, would you leave your family to go meet a boy? I personally feel like maybe that was a bad decision. What if she could have figured it out another way? I don't know. But having those conversations, just where we know we don't just accept it. We, we praise what they're doing right. We break apart what we think they're doing wrong. We tell them why it's offensive. I still do it with my kids and they're watching Friends. Every episode of Friends is an opportunity to talk about <laughs> something that's inappropriate or something that's offensive, even though they didn't mean it to be then. 
you know, you could do it with a 15 year old, you could do it with an 18 year old, you could do it with your own mom. It's, it's something we need to keep doing and that becomes a habit. And then your kids will start thinking through that filter of like, well, why weren't there any black people on friends? That's really weird. You point that out, they start thinking about it and then they might apply it to other things, start questioning media. That's yeah. my hope. Yeah. And it's almost like, you know, we talk about, and, and right now, if you look at, you know, uh, parents monitoring um, devices for their children, there are so many apps. It's just in the last few years, they've exploded as more as we talk about the dangers of social media and unchecked and uncensored media. A lot of these applications have come, you know, to stop bullying, to stop hate and all of those sort of things. Mm -hmm. um, but kids find another way or through their peer group, those messages still come to them. And so what you're saying is almost like build internal filters for your children. So when they come across this content, they know how to analyze it. They know how to yeah. understand it. So they're knowing that context is very important. I said that's, we'll never be able to really monitor their social media use. There's just a million ways around it. I think it's good why that's why i suggest find a social media platform that you're really really comfortable with and let your fourth grader use that platform in their own account on your phone that's my first piece of advice is fourth graders they are a lot less likely to be sneaky and find a way to get an account that you're not going to watch so you then get to monitor what they're doing and how they do it if, if it, this is an important life skill Everything from how they talk to their friends in direct messages. Is there some bullying? What should they say? If you see one friend bullying another in direct messages, you can guide your friend in how to uh, guide your child in how to be a better friend. All the way to how they become victims of phishing scams and give their passwords out. Like these are things you can teach them young. These are seriously important skills. And when they're in fourth, fifth, sometimes even sixth grade, um, they're really interested in what you have to say. Like they want to learn about it. So giving them that opportunity, I gave my son Instagram. I mirrored his account on my phone. Um, and one time I saw that there was a girl who was sending him inappropriate direct messages at midnight. And I happened to know her mom. And I said to my son, you need to set up healthy boundaries. I wouldn't have known that this was happening. I was able to talk to her mom and be like, just friend to friend. Like, oh, I just saw this was happening. By the time they're in seventh, eighth grade, especially 10th grade, you cannot, and you really, unless you have signs that something's wrong, shouldn't be reading their direct message. You shouldn't be reading their text messages. And, but what you want to have done is built into them a sense of what's right and wrong in these social media skills. So you know they're not hurting anyone else and they're not gonna become victims. Hmm. And, and, you know, previously we were talking about how some of the N-words or jokes around Holocaust become, you know, are just becoming norms somehow, no, no matter how much socially it's unacceptable behavior, it sort of sneaks up in all of these different mediums. And so for them to just say, this is not how we talk about it, or we don't say this out aloud, just gives them a message of like, oh, it's fine under the covers, it's fine. But like, don't say it, but you can think it. You could just, if nobody else is watching, it's totally fine, rather than explaining why is this offensive? Why is this hurtful? It's a, it's a, there's so many interesting things we start saying with preschoolers that we don't adjust as they get older. So if my daughter throws a toy, I'll say, oh, we don't throw toys. We set them down gently. 
You know, we don't say that word or we don't, we don't scream in someone's ear. And we don't always say why, because they're so little and these habits follow us as they get older. But you're right that if we're like, that's not how we talk about the Holocaust. And we leave it at that. Or like, oh, someone might hear you say that. You're right. The message is, you know, that's not how we talk about it, but that might be how we think about it. And instead, you know, one of the points I've always made about the Holocaust is my kids are very detached from it because most of the Holocaust survivors have passed away and they have no, no real life memory of people who suffered like this. And, and I always tell them, like, I remember when I was sitting with my friend Edith, who has since passed away for the first time. And I watched her push up her sleeve and she had her tattoo from the concentration camps. I knew she had a German accent. I knew she was Jewish. I, I, at that moment, this frail, she was actually like complete badass of a woman, but she was tiny and she had this paper, paper thin skin in this tattoo. And, and having that come out, come at me, was like being hit by a tidal wave of emotion and, and, to see it with my own eyes, to somebody that I hugged, who's, who I could feel in my arms. And this person had been in a concentration camp. She had lost her family. She didn't talk about it, so I didn't know. She talked about it after, after that, but they never gonna have that. They're never going to talk to somebody who survived that. They're never gonna talk, they're, they're likely not gonna ever have a conversation with somebody whose parents survived it or parents died in, in the Holocaust. And so it becomes, you know, like Genghis Khan. It becomes a thing of history that's almost a punchline. Yeah. And becomes, because it's no longer human. It's it's so far away from them. They don't realize how close it actually is. They yeah. don't understand that. And that's what we have to bring home to them is you know, you're going to make a joke about it's like this weird, disgusting prevalence online of jokes about people being put in ovens. It's not even necessarily in reference to Jewish people, but that's, it's this like, you should be put in an oven or that person. Should, it's, it's so disturbing. And I'm, I say like, what if this person next to you is Jewish and their grandparent was put in an oven? Or even if they weren't, that's, what happened to them that's a real experience of their life very violent thing first of all and then there's a historic context of a whole group of people being discriminated and persecuted that way right so uh, that's where like the whole context comes in and you you bring a really good point about when some of these things have happened in the past and there's so many different genocides that have happened and are, are happening as we speak in different parts of the world when your reality is so different and your own lived experience and the people that you are surrounded um, by their lived experience is so different, it's very hard to know that this is really happening or it has happened. Like the enormity of the situation is just, it's just that that whole thing is just not there. Yeah, and we, that's why in a lot of ways, um, what we tried doing with Project Pluralist was really pushing this idea that not everybody can have that experience or can have a very, um, you know, wide variety of very diverse people around them all the time with multiple different experiences for them to feel that empathy. 
And so being able to read about things, you know, books can open them up to build that empathy and for them to know these characters or these stories. And just that is like one way that everybody can access rather than saying, oh, we're going to take them to go see a museum or we're going to go and then they're going to like talk to somebody or they're going to, they, if they meet somebody, it sort of opens this whole world and makes it a little more real for them and for them, yeah. have, them to have that empathy as they're going through this narration, the story. And because that's really important to make things real for them. Yeah, and I think the hardest thing for me as a parent, and I'm sure other people feel this way, is you know, I am the Debbie Downer of our family. My kids will say something and they'll look to see what I'm gonna say because so many of the things they hear online are so offensive and, or even a little bit offensive and they know, well, mom's gonna have an analysis of this. Mom's not gonna like it. And even worse, I don't, I want them to understand if I tell them the story of my friend Edith, and what it's like to hold somebody in your arms and hug them goodbye and feel all these things. I don't want them to feel like I'm making them feel bad. I don't want them, I don't, oh, you children have such a sheltered life. You know, just so-and-so's grandmother was killed in the Armenian genocide. That's your friend's grandmother or whatever that thing is. It's, you know, slavery or, or anything. I don't want them to make, to feel like I'm manipulating them to feel bad about it so that they don't say the thing I don't want them to say. So there's this really tough balance between how do we evoke empathy and, but avoid sort of like a saccharine sort of um, over-dramatization and just me with how I am. I'm just like that. I'm just dramatic. And so it's hard for me not to be like, and then all the people were herded into a group and murdered. You know, it, it doesn't necessarily translate to a productive conversation. That's a tough thing for parents. How do you know when you've gone too far? My kids will tell me, stop making me feel bad about this. Mm. And it's always like, I'm not trying to make you feel bad about it, but if you feel bad about it, maybe it's a sign you shouldn't be doing it, saying it, watching it, sharing it, whatever that thing is that they're doing. Yeah, and, and that's a really good point because, because you've been having these conversations with your kids and they've been listening to this and they have a reaction ready now at this point. Yeah. For a lot of people, they want to have this conversation. They don't even know where to start. Like, how do you, how do you tell them where to start? Like, let's say starting with the, they're starting when their kids are teenagers. Like if you're, if you've never had this conversation before when they were young and now they're a teenager, like kid turns 13 and seeing everything around the world and you want to talk about it. How do you start? My mom used to do this when I was a teenager and she had to have an uncomfortable conversation, which for my mom was always just about like, I don't know, birth control or something she really didn't want to talk about. And she would always frame it like, um, I heard kids at your high school are, or like, um, maybe when you're talking to your friend so-and-so, you could tell her this about condoms or something. But I still do that with my kids to some degree. Well, I'll be like, you know, in my research, or when I was online, I heard that a lot of kids in high school are doing this, I don't know what it is, like the George Floyd challenge, horrifying racist thing. And thank God it didn't happen at my kid's high school. But you know, if it were, you might be able to say, I heard some people are doing this. And like, I just want to talk to you about, about, I know you never would, I assume you never would, but if you see someone doing this and here's why it's offensive, here's why it's hurtful, 
Here's what we have to make sure we're not a part of that. And then they're going to be annoyed with you. Just like they'd be annoyed if you tried to talk to them about condoms or something else that's essential or nutrition, other things that are essential to their well-being. They're going to be like, I know, mom. Oh my God, shut up. But it has to happen. And I, I, I try to depersonalize it as much as I can and just ask them to talk to me. You know, with a 15-year-old, he has so much to teach me. He is so wise about the internet. He's so much smarter than me about it. And oftentimes at his age, I can go to him and ask him, like, who's this so-and-so? What's this about? And he'll be like, oh, you won't believe it. And he'll have all the scoop. And then that's a good way to open it up so that I'm not going to him being like, do you know what I heard about Isaac Butterfield? You know, and I come up with that name because that guy did a big attack video on me. <laughs> but I could go to my son and if he didn't know, he could research it and come back to me with information and then we could discuss it together. And I think maybe, you know, 14 and up, that's the best tactic because first of all, they probably do know more than us about it. And mm -hmm. second of all, they don't want to feel like we're coming at them. We're outsiders. You know, even me, I work in online publishing. I'm still an outsider. I, I have 20,000 people following me. I'm verified on Twitter. I'm still an outsider compared to my son's knowledge of the internet and how the internet works. So I'd rather he tell me and then we analyze it together. That's my, that's my personal tactic. Yeah. And you know, that allows them to not being told and that's the big thing especially with teenagers like they don't want to be told things they don't want to be lectured you know they feel like they're adults and now is the time for them to experience some independence and so it's sort of a interesting way of changing um sort of like you know how you interact with them and let them talk about things and just open up this generation we can learn from them rather than feel like we have to lecture to them all the time hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. And so with a lot of parents there right now, uh, there are still protests going on in some of the cities. And so they're hearing about Black Lives Matter. Um, they're hearing about protests that also get projected as like riots. Somebody's going and burning things and people are destroying their own cities. And there's that kind of a rhetoric. But on the other side, there's a rhetoric of like, hey, we have to march and we have to stand for the rights because that's how we've always made history and that's how things change. That's how new laws come into place and all that stuff. Um, how do you talk to your kids specifically about what's happening right now? <laughs> it's, it's hard, right? I have been very lucky in that my kids and I have already gone through so much online with this racism stuff that the, I already know their positions on it. Um, there are so many things that I've learned and I've learned them from prominent anti-racist activists, from a lot of really important voices who are mostly black women, uh, just ways to counter some of the most popular talking points. If, if my child were to say to me, well, Dr. King would never have advocated for this then I would know to say, Dr. King is not the person that you see represented, you know, in that Hallmark card type of thing. And I would bring them information of things Dr. King actually said, you know, what, what is a riot? And I'm not gonna quote this correctly, but the, the riot is the language of the unheard, of the oppressed. And I would talk to them about that. And I would, 
I would come to them with the real history of riots. And the big thing that I tried to tell my kids with this was, you know, there is a discomfort, especially for us watching places that we go in, you know, Santa Monica, California, we go to that third street promenade. We shop there watching some of those shops being looted and damaged. Um, you know, focusing on, on look at this protest and what these people are trying to say. And, and you know, these, these stores have insurance and look at the attention being brought to this and really what's more important. What's more important that Breonna Taylor was murdered and, and, and that George Floyd was murdered and all these people, or is it more important that the van store window was broken and try to just step out of that thing that's so easy to get into when you're a white person and especially when it's your own community, this thing of like, oh my gosh, we go to that store. Oh my gosh, I love the Patagonia store. People are stealing surfboards. Like, let's just remember you guys, like what matters in this conversation? What really matters in this conversation is not who's stealing sneakers. What matters is how much suffering we are seeing in this, in this community and how much people are waking up to that suffering. And it's a hard thing to do because you relate to people like you, that's human nature. And you relate to the places you've been and things you've seen. It's hard not to fall for that idea that property is as important as human lives. But, you know, all it takes is one person to say like, let's just think about this. Like what really matters right now? And the other thing that I have pointed out to my friends who've asked about how to talk to their kids about this is, you know, we think about that lunch counter protest where um, black Americans sat down where it was a whites only counter and had lunch or had a milkshake. And we think, oh, that was so peaceful and they were so brave. And a lot of people also see that as not very disruptive. It was like, well, they did it in this way that wasn't very disruptive. It was hugely disruptive and they could have been murdered for it. Yeah. It, was, it was terrifying at the time that they did that and terrifying for their safety. and. And Rosa Parks didn't just walk to the front of the bus because she was tired and she did it because, and it was a huge risk to her life and people were really mad and they, people rioted back at these very, these things that seem so mundane now. So these little things, you know, sitting at a counter were not little things. And our kids, they've been taught this weird thing about the civil rights movement that was, that it was peaceful and that it was, it was, you know, a fairy tale, a very yes, the gentle nudging that got people to stop segregation. And it's all a lie. <laughs> it's not gentle. They barged their way in as they should have, and people were murdered over it. White people and black people, Jewish people, Catholic people, everybody who anyone who protested took that risk. So that is the message that we need to get out to them when it comes to talking about Black Lives Matter. It's like this is not it's not supposed to be easy. And and they're they're blocking freeways and your dad can't get to work. Who cares? Doesn't matter. They can, There's a bigger context here. There's a bigger yeah. thing that's that's happening. Yes, it doesn't matter that dad can't get to work. Why are they doing it? They've got five news helicopters focusing on them and they're getting a message of anti-racism out. That's what matters. 
you know, and that's a conversation. That's a hard conversation to have because a lot of parents don't understand it. All parents should start doing is looking for places to learn from anti-racist activists and just follow them on Instagram. Like go and search in Google. You can just search like uh, anti-racism activist Instagram <laughs> and there's so many. And I personally would choose the people who are the subjects of the discrimination. I don't think you need to watch so many white people talking about anti-racist uh, theory, though there are some good ones. And just re listen to their stories every day. Aja Barber talks about racism. She talks about all sorts of things. Every day I watch all of her stories. I don't comment, I don't send her DMs. I just look at them and I learn from them and I'm challenged by them. It's part of my day. It's part of seeing, you know, my cousin's kids or whatever on Instagram. And those little things, they, they really help us learn. And it's just about being open to that and, and seeking it out. That's great. Thank you, Joanna. This was a really wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining and, and having the conversation. I think that's a thing where a lot of times these candid conversations are harder. You've been doing them for a while, so you're yeah. a pro at it. And I think that's what's important for people to hear. Well, and I know that I go on and on and on, but it's because it's so important to me. And I'm so grateful that you gave me the opportunity to talk about this and hopefully it all made sense. <laughs> it, I think it did. And it's going to make a lot of sense for a lot of people. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions about the conversation that we just had with Joanne or about the work that Project Pluralist is doing, please drop us a line. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.